You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm a sacrum from the Wessex Formation. And I am the ghost of Christmas deep time. <laughs> in episode 13, our first anniversary episode, dear listeners, our guest is paleoartist Raven Amos, another instantly recognizable star in the paleosphere firmament, who will be telling Mark and me how family history and the Alaskan climate, among a myriad of influences, play their part in her approach to her work. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Album of Dinosaurs by Tom McGowan, illustrated by Rod Ruth and published by Rand McNally in 1972. But first, uh, try not to confuse your thyri offerings or let your Google search mislead you. Uh, Niels has more about a newcomer with an almost familiar sounding name. Haven't you, Niels? Yeah. Um, Southern Ankylosaurians. More and more armored dinosaurs are showing up from what was once Gondwana land. And this month saw the description of Stegoeurus. Did you mean Stegosaurus? No. Did you mean Stegoceras? No. No, Google, leave me alone. It's Stegoeurus. Stegoeurus elegansen, a new dinosaur from Chile. Uh, they're doing uh, very well down there, aren't they, for dinosaurs? It's a small ankylosaurian, not an ankylosaurid. Uh, it's about two meters long, fairly complete, and once again, rather bizarre. Much like the derived northern ankylosaurids, which lived around the same time, but to which this animal is not closely related, it is in possession of a tail weapon. Rather than the usual bludgeoning club, however, this animal has, and I quote, a flat, frond-like structure formed by seven pairs of laterally projecting osteoderms encasing the distal half of the tail. So, rather than the familiar club, it's more of a multi-pointed mace or some sort of primitive battle axe. The paper was published in Nature by Sergio Soto Acuna et al. and comes with gorgeous artwork by Chile's finest paleoartist Mauricio Alvarez. Check it out, it is open access. Of course, um, it's been all over Twitter, and uh, everybody's re- everybody's reconstructed it. Yes, of course they have. It's a beautiful tale. It's it's almost um, almost foliate like uh, in, in my yeah. Definitely, opinion. I think yeah, it said that. reminded me of some sort of pine cone. Yes, <laughs> yeah, the angry pine cone strike uh, back, or, or an especially uh, robust uh, palm frond. Yeah, exactly. Or a pineapple. Make it whatever you will. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was going to ask how many times. Uh, Joshua Knipper has already reconstructed it, and how many different angles? Oh, uh, you know, it's uh, yes, it's produced a meme of it by now. I think he's written five books about it already. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me at all. He doesn't sleep. Anyway, thank you, Niels. You're um, welcome, Mark. Uh, how does the little Ineosaurus improve its shining tail, or any other part of it, for that matter? I think you have a little light to shed on this subject. Well, this is actually about Ineosaurus's head, um, so the opposite end to its tail. But it's an open access paper published in Acta Paleontologica Polonica. It is. Deep breath. Comparative cranial osteology of subadult Eusimptosaurus ceratopsid dinosaurs from the Two Medicine Formation, Montana, indicates sequence of ornamentation, development, and complex superorbital ontogenetic ontogenetic change, which I almost got wrong at the end. Uh, I'm saying, blah, doing so well as well. <sighs> Stuck the landing. Yeah, exactly. This is by John P. Wilson and John B. Scanella. Um, and it's looking at a couple of 
well, one's definitely an Ionosaurus skull, the other one's possibly an Ionosaurus skull, possibly um, an Achillosaurus skull instead. Uh, there is this hypothesis by Horner primarily that um, Achillosaurus actually evolved directly from Ionosaurus um, because they're that close together and they seem to form a, a sequence. And this research plays into that and adds a bit more, a bit more data, a bit more information. So I analyze these two skulls. Um, one of them is a subadult. It has a, a snappy specimen <laughs> number of MOR4568887. Good luck remembering that. Yeah, are you taking notes, listeners? You might be asked questions <laughs> later. <laughs> a number of the specimens they refer to in here have similar um, similar numbers. Although, fortunately, the other one is uh, just is MOR591, obviously from the Museum of the Rockies. What they found is... Ionosaurus, um, unlike other centrosaurs, actually, but, uh, but like Achillosaurus and the later Pachyrhinosaurus, has these flattened bosses over its eyes instead of superorbital horns. So there are no little pointy horns above the eyes. It's got these sort of flattened, uh, almost sph- spheroid lumps and masses above its eyes. What's interesting about the um, skulls they've looked at is that one of them is actually slightly smaller overall but it has it seems to be in a more advanced stage of development so the uh, the one with the long name the long number rather <laughs> appears to be a bit older than the site the possibly slightly later skull um but it's at a sort of more advanced stage it has the bosses over its eyes rather than um pointy horn calls like like um the later skull does and uh yeah they found that the basically the frill appears to develop before the face so the they have the uh the left squamosal and it is adult size whereas the face is shorter and it has certain sort of sub-adult immature features which indicates that maybe the frill was um more important in signaling perhaps than the facial ornamentation the facial ornamentation developed later but yeah the amount of um ontogenetic development in ionosaurus in particular is pretty crazy as i said going from having a pretty much uh well, a nose horn that points pretty much straight up and two little pointy horn cores above the eyes, two little superorbital horns, to having these flattened bosses and this obviously downward curving horn in the very large um, adult individuals like the holotype. It's uh, it's pretty wild. And yeah, there are some interesting implications for, as well, the possible evolutionary sequence going from Ionosaurus to Achillosaurus in that the slightly later skull, which may be Achillosaurus, maybe Ionosaurus, um, is bigger but more immature maybe they uh grew larger more quickly you wouldn't believe the extent to which these animals actually um absor- sort of resorbed bone um how you know the fact that these structures on their face completely change shape um yes it's absolutely and also the apparent progression from centrosaurs with the plesiomorphic condition where they have these uh, pointy horn cores over time towards having more and more ugly lumpy faces it's quite fascinating. It seems like, it seems like they were going in the wrong direction. They started out with um, gorgeous sort of styracosaurs and uh, centrosaurs with, you know, spectacular pointy horns. And they end up with a uh, lump and face freak like Pachyrhinosaurus. And then they end up with Pachyrhinosaurus, which has no horns at all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to mention that. Thinking. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems to be, uh, at least so far, a common uh, characteristic among marginocephalians if uh, pachycephalosaurs uh, are to be uh, considered as well. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Always wonderful to know more about ontogenetic stages. Fair enough, they don't mention. Yeah, they don't. They don't, they don't mention pachycephalosaurs, but yeah, that's another um, interesting interesting thing to consider there, where spikes are potentially being lost in favour of big mm. lumpy masses of bone, big rounded lumpy yeah. masses. There is a bit of a parallel there, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure it's a complete coincidence, but uh, 
Yeah, yes, interesting parallels be. made for sure. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Uh, finally, uh, almost as though it were a Christmas present, uh, the description of Baby Yingliang was published just last week on December the 21st. This is the exquisitely preserved embryo of a late Cretaceous oviraptorosaur from Ganzhou, southern China, just on the brink of hatching. Now, quite apart from the astonishing beauty and condition of the specimen, uh, the best dinosaur embryo ever found in history, according to Dr. Ma, one of the paper's co-authors, the fossil is yet another ironclad link in the dinosaur and bird chain. The embryo is curled up in the avian-like posture known as tucking, a position adopted by birds just prior to hatching, with the head tucked between the feet for stabilization in preparation to cracking open the shell with its beak. This indicates, says Dr. Ma, that such behavior in modern birds first evolved and originated among their dinosaur ancestors. Uh, Measuring about 27 centimeters long from head to tail, baby Yingliang lies within a 17 centimeter long egg at the Yingliang Stone Natural History Museum in Xiamen, Fujian province. It was first discovered in 2000, but in a familiar sounding story, was put into storage and forgotten about <laughs> until construction work on the museum obliged the sorting through of the stored fossils and the researchers suspected that an embryo may lie within one of the eggs. And sure enough, it did. Uh, for the moment, part of Yingliang's body is still covered by rock, and the team intends to continue research on it using scanning technology. And we will, of course, be eagerly watching this space. The paper by Xing et al. is published by iScience and is open access. Links, as always, will be included in the show notes. So, oh, that's very beautiful. Good. <laughs> to, to be honest... Uh, I'm kind of surprised that nobody went for the low-hanging fruits there for the uh, the Isle of Wight dromaeosaur. Uh, yes. Um, well, well, I quite have mentioned it at the start there. I am a sacrum from the Wessex Formation. You did. You 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 hinted at it. That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yes, it would have it's been actually a sacrum and some referred vertebrae. Right. And it would have been just the right item uh, to follow up, given that we did cover um, most of the the recent Isle of Wight uh, uh, dinosaurs, and uh, yes, and this would have been the latest, uh, the latest in the line, as it were. But um, I suppose the, its fragmentary nature meant that it uh, had to be forgotten in favour of more interesting, <laughs> <laughs> in favour of more interesting items. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was really taken by this um, cranial osteology thing. And also, it's like, I always do theropods. And I thought, I'll, I'll do something a bit different. I'll talk about um, exactly. genetics in centrosaurs for a change. Yeah. No, yes, plus, um, really. plus, this paper's open access and the Vectoraptor paper is not. Boo. Yeah, that is you have true. to pay for it. That is uh, a major point against it. Uh, we're, yes. we're boycotting things now that are behind a paywall. <laughs> See, that's, that's yes, the we are. This is our president. That seems a tad unfair. All these unfair. new dinosaurs from the Isle of Wight, though. Mark, how do you keep missing them? You go to the Isle of Wight every I'm year. Not really, I'm not really looking for dinosaurs. I'm more like going to Black Gang Chine. Um, <laughs> You're looking for robot hell. dinosaurs. I'm, 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 I'm happy with cheesy rubber Chinese dinosaurs. Yeah, Chinese robots. Good old... Our Chinese robots. All right, then. <laughs> On to our vintage dinosaur art book. Vintage dinosaur art. Album of Dinosaurs by Tom McGowan, illustrated by Rod Ruth. All right, where shall we start? 
I want to start with the Apatosaurus or Brontosaurus. Um, I mean, it's labelled Apatosaurus, but let's face it, it's Brontosaurus. I mean, let's look at the thing. Of course. I mean, it's got the classic um, Brontosaur look with the kind of Camarasaur head on it. Um, but it's such a great illustration. <laughs> and a rather mournful expression. Yes, mournful expression. But you've got to really, I mean, that striking solid, well, almost solid yellow background with the pterosaurs flying overhead. Oh, the, yes. the sense of scale that we have with the foliage, sort of the plants in the um, in the foreground, providing a sense of uh, enormity to this um, slightly forlorn-looking grey <laughs> creature. But uh, yeah, it's 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 really effective and great use of space on the page as well. Mm. Oh, I think it's beautiful. Again, to make it look huge, yeah. it's basically from top to bottom on the page. It's a clever way of making it look massive without, I mean, the tail is actually cut off at the bottom there, so it doesn't show the whole length of it, but it still looks absolutely enormous. So yeah, very clever use of uh, perspective, um, of the space on the page, nice use of colour, really pops, I think. Um, yeah, that's... the colour is great on that one. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, illustrated by Rod Ruth, what's... Uh... What was his background? I'm not sure, actually. I can't remember that. <laughs> anyway. I do not know Rod Ruth at all, other than uh, the work for this book. Um, so now I'm afraid I don't know their background. Well, we should have done some research. <laughs> anyway, this bit will be cut. None of us did our homework, so we'll just ignore that. Let's see. There we go. Rod Ruth was an American illustrator and comic artist, uh-huh. best known for the comic The Toodles. And suddenly it makes sense. <laughs> A comic art background is suddenly, it's all there. It's so clear. There is a lot of storytelling going on in this book, as well as obviously the main colour illustrations, a little supplementary illustration showing um, various various scenes, various different stages of um, what's happening. Like the, uh, is it Ceratosaur attacking a Stegosaur? And there's another view on that as well on the next page, which shows the uh, Ceratosaur plunging down into the water, uh, defeated, and from a different angle yes. as well, which is good fun. Yeah, that, that whole uh, comic aspect. And there's quite a bit of action. There's some action. I mean, that's probably the, the most dynamic sort of scene. There are some other sort of predator-prey interactions as well. There's a the classic um, T-Rex bending down to get a thwack from um, an ankylosaur on the face. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> so, see it. Yes. And, uh, ah, that's a wonderful retro tortoise-like ankylosaur there. Yeah, very, very sort of uh, very, very short limbs, no neck, extremely short tail. Obviously, yeah, proper early 1970s. And so wide, too. Well, they were wide. That's that's at least accurate. <laughs> but, um, but then again, it's wide. Throughout. It's basically uniformly yes, round. But, yeah, like yeah. a pancake. It's, it's, it's flat. Right, exactly. Rather than being wide at the hips <laughs> in particular, it's just uniformly wide. Uh, fallen log in the background, by the way. It's one for the uh, fallen log scrapbook. <laughs> oh, we love fallen logs. Yes. Um this book unusually shows T-Rex both winning and losing because there's obviously the main illustration which T-Rex is getting um, thwacked in the head. But then on the next page, you've got a smaller black and white illustration where it's actually managed to overturn the ankylosaur and it's now standing proudly on top of it like some kind of trophy. It's hunter. overturned the ankylosaur. And in this one, the ankylosaur looks very crystal balancing. <laughs> it certainly does. It does. <laughs> What else? Oh, there's, there's the one, uh, the, the profile image of T-Rex just standing there. Again, like a trophy hunter on top of its kill. And it's sort of um, turned around to look at us and it's just giving us the eye, which I really love. Yeah, that's a full-on Jurassic Park-style posing T-Rex. That's right. And there is a wonderful sense of menace and foreboding there, especially in the atmosphere, which very much complements the, the sort of glare, the side eye that it's giving us. 
Yeah, I, I must say there is a um, sort of a rubbery quality to that T-Rex. I, yeah, I see what you mean. It does look as though it, uh, yes. It's very wrinkly um, and not that obviously scaly, apart from the face. I mean, of course, the scales would be absolutely tiny, but it does look very kind of rubbery and wrinkly. I, I see what you mean. It does remind one of toys um, produced during the period. But it's, it's funny what you said about Jurassic Park, so I never even noticed that before, that the uh, the ending in Jurassic Park is almost the same pose, you know, 20 years later. I'm sure it's a complete coincidence. That's um, right, yeah. Because obviously they sort of had to squeeze into that um, rotunda in Jurassic Park. But yeah, it's funny how it's almost the same. Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, T-Rex posing like that, it is a bit of a trope. And maybe it came from books like this. This is the kind of pulp that Jurassic Park was emulating. It's possible. Pulp? That's a bit cool. Well, uh, material. <laughs> yeah, say. this is quality stuff, damn it, Niels. You can't call it pulp. <laughs> how dare you? I don't mean pulp in a disparaging <laughs> way. No. No, no, I understood you. Yes. But, you know, he was a comic book well, artist. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. In a sense, I suppose there's no escaping the word trope and, and not being used in a disparaging way at all. Um, but uh, but yeah, in, in the manner of paying homage to uh, the familiar imagery. So, yeah, it's highly probable, actually, I think, Niels, um, that, uh, that this might have influenced um, that. Yeah, there are quite a few tropes in here obviously there's the allosaurus in the classic um, american museum position uh chewing on a sauropod carcass which yeah that's of a, course, that's very obvious tropey yeah it's, it's a nice version of it it has uh, got the old very knighty and horn smoothed over look about it but uh, absolutely gorgeous illustration i love the uh, crocodilians circling i mean to t- uh, take a morsel for themselves mm. um and the allosaurus sort of almost turned towards one of them like yes. you know back off <laughs> It's great. And, and yeah, just the, the background there is very lush with all the reeds, uh, the sort of the palms stretching way back into the distance as well, this um, floodplain. Ruth does go to quite some lengths to um, really flesh out the worlds of the dinosaurs. He doesn't just um, plonk dinosaurs in a, in, in a desert and call it a day. Or, right. or even just, um, you know, a landscape with a, few, yes. with a few trees. I mean, if you have a look at the Struthiomimus illustration, yeah, it's fantastically detailed with uh, lots of well, flora and fauna. Uh, there's a snake in the right-hand corner. There's a frog that's actually mm-hmm. hopping away to escape from the dinosaurs. There's a crocodilian yeah. just lurking in the background. And the pouring uh, rain. Yeah, the pouring rain, which yes. you don't see often enough in these things. Too often they're living in permanent sunshine. These things, to me, the uh, the fleshing out of the environment uh, is one of my favourite things about these illustrations, actually. They are so fully realised in almost all of them. They're beautiful. I think my favorite illustration, uh, strangely enough, is one of the Compsognathus. You mentioned, Mark, in yeah. your previous blog posts about this book, um, how, how beautifully composed this is, and I completely agree. And, uh, and again, that sense of scale being given, because it's such a small dinosaur, um, it is being dwarfed by, by all the vegetation around it. Yeah, and this just, the, the, the lush environment and atmosphere and the composition is, makes this just one of my... Well, my favorite, actually, from this book. And it's not even a favorite dinosaur of mine. But I think, I think the use of color throughout is amazing. The, yes, absolutely. If you look at the, um, the iguanodons there, even though, you know, the, um, the reconstruction of the animal, particularly the one in the foreground, probably one of the most retro ones in here, this side of the Brontosaurus. 
very Neve Parker. Mm. Yeah, it's got the G lap and at the same time yeah. that orange yes. sky and the uh, the silhouettes of those trees and uh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, and again the little tortoise down there in the lower left hand corner. I don't yes, I agree. Um, just throwing the little tortoise. They they do have. Oh yes, I see it. Hello there. <laughs> they do have bizarre hands, those iguanodon, and to make it worse, it's a um, a close up of a hand as well that we're given, and it's properly weird. It has like um, a really uh, instead of having the separated hooves as it should do, it sort of has um, obviously the spiked spiked thumb, and then four identical looking fingers that are just seemingly randomly uneven lengths with these big claws stuck on the end. I don't know. It's yes, proper weird. That's very <laughs> curious. Yeah. <laughs> the last finger in particular, I think it's been understood for some time, even for this date, that it doesn't have a claw at the end of it. Um, yeah, although... Am I right? Yeah, although it's it's a common thing. I mean, it's, yeah, it's been known for some time that they should only have three claws on their hands at most, but um, I don't know. I, I do like that the um, in the main illustration, as you said, the uh, as an iguanas are walking along the background, actually has its, it has its back parallel to the ground. You see? Yeah, that? that's a very good one. Yeah. That's, uh, that's rather advanced for the mm. time. That's that's what Neve Parker's Iguanodon would have looked like if it was more horizontal. Yes. <laughs> that's right, yes. So, so, uh, yeah. I mean, um, I was going to say, how about the Triceratops piece? Uh, again, with the kind of moody sky and, and a fully realized landscape with birds and a T-Rex just hanging around in the background somewhere. Pterosaurs? Yeah. Yes, I think it's beautiful. It actually makes me think of, of rice fields back in Thailand, actually, this one. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised. I can see that. Absolutely. What else about that? Oh, yeah. Some of the uh, Triceratops do look a bit weird. Um, there's a bit of an inconsistency in where their horns come from on their face. There's, there's one in the foreground where the horn sort of is curling up from behind the orbit. And then there's one in the background where it's directly above the orbit. I mean, I guess you could put it down to... Um, yeah, that's very strange. Individual variation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I can I can also see some uh, some influence there from Knight and from Parker and um, oh yeah, you know there's probably some there's probably different artists that he used as as his reference point there. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's always going to be some Knight and Parker in there. Well, especially Knight. Yes, that's um, the T Rex skulking in the background there it does remind me of Charles Knight's uh, T Rex and Triceratops. I mean that does get perpetuated, doesn't it? This theme of uh, a herd of herbivorous animals um, with the lone predator just in the back emerging. Um, well, some really great paleo art came out of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Not not least the uh, the wonderful one of the hadrosaurs by Le Conseigneur, uh, John Sibic. Yes. Um, that's one of my favorite illustrations of his. But I digress. That's not this book. Anyway, but <laughs> speaking of hadrosaurs, though, I do want to draw our attention to this. I believe it's, is it a Myasaurus or is it a, an Anatotitan, Edmontosaurus, if you will? Um, um, well, yeah, it's, it's Anatosaurus is how it's labeled. Trachodon. <laughs> yeah, Anatosaurus. Trachodon. <laughs> All right. Well, the thing is, we were only just um, talking in last episode with Mighty Vibas illustrations about whether there were more instances of fully submerged amphibious hadrosaurs. And look at that, and here's one. Here we are. But by the way, it's funny how the, um, the hadrosaur is so flat-footed, given that it's amphibious. It has these kind of elephantine uh, paws on its head. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like that's right. Clearly, this terrestrial animal doesn't really belong there. The, the, head's, very, the head's pretty well observed. It's got the... Uh, the crest running down the back, which is very um, Charles Knight as well. That's that specific look. 
but the um yeah that the heads would observe the beak yes um but yeah classic classic old discredited paleo art tropes on yeah there. i was kind of I kind of wanted to talk about that more in um, in a general way because last month we discussed a very tropey book from the early 1960s. This is a very tropey book from the early 1970s. Apart from the art style, how far has science come at this point and how much of it has seeped into the popular literature represented by these very tropey books? It's um, a good question. I think the science had advanced quite a bit i don't think it had seeped into the popular books that much um this is I mean, still the, the big difference was by this point deinonychus was out right that's right and yeah. that that really changed everything that was the catalyzer for the dinosaur renaissance and there was mm-hmm. you would find increasingly in books of this time uh, descriptions of for example sauropods as being land living as opposed to being amphibious i mean it hadn't completely taken over but yeah really okay it hasn't advanced Nothing in here has advanced all that much beyond the 60s. I mean, this, is, this was only the early 70s, but um, it hasn't really seeped into the popular literature. Well, that's right. It's it's still very early. Yeah. I, I think if you look again later in the 70s, we would see more dinosaur renaissance, renaissance ideas creeping in. You would have more active tyrannosaurs. I mean, for God's sake, at, at the end of the 70s, you had um, John McLaughlin and um, Archosauria, which was... You know, leaps beyond anything that's in here. <laughs> but, uh, in, terms, in, in terms of the science, that right. not the art yeah, science. That's an outlier, of course. It, it is an outlier, but you did have the influence of um, of Ostrom and Bakker and so on, starting to creep into more and more of the popular literature. Mm. Yes, and Dale Russell was a consultant on this book, and uh, yeah, he definitely was in favour of. I know, famously, he. Well, supposedly he advised um, Kish to make the dinosaurs a bit too skinny in some of her work, but um, he was very much in favour of very active dinosaurs. And I do think that is reflected in the artwork here. I do think we see more dynamic scenes than we would have um, in the, the Parker slash Burian generation. I agree. No, I yeah, agree. There, there is more movement. Uh, to, to borrow from and to parallel an art history timeline, um, I would call Rod Ruth someone like uh, the Giotto and his contemporaries of the dinosaur proto-Renaissance, because you have here um, the characteristics of an earlier understanding and depiction of dinosaurs, um, the tropes that we've all been talking about, um, much like uh, Giotto's late Gothic characteristics. Um, stay with me. Um, uh, all of this combined with a, a clearly, as you were saying, Niels, a progressive paving of the way towards what will become the uh, high dinosaur renaissance, if you will. (laughs) And that includes not just the depiction of the dinosaurs themselves, but even such things as the palette choices. We have less of the somber, occluded atmosphere of such earlier artists like uh, Knight, for example, and much more of the spirited use of color, which we've all been observing, these wonderfully vibrant um, oranges, yellows, and pinks, and uh, all of which um, testament to his, his comic book background, but but also just, um, again, to come back to our parallel, or to my parallel, um, leading the way towards uh, a much more refreshed depiction of dinosaurs that we see in the later dinosaur renaissance. I think this is my, my takeaway of this book. If you look at that Coelophysis one, yeah. Yes. Uh, so striking. You, know, you get you get those purples and you get those greens and those those 
volcanic reds in the background, background volcano, take a shot. But <laughs> there's almost something there that predicts what Wayne Barlow was going to do. Exactly. Exactly. In terms of the anatomy there, there is, um, obviously it's a dynamically posed dinosaur and it's set a very colorful scene, but you can still see those kind of very night style um, weedy muscles on the limbs, the legs in particular. Yeah. Uh, they're quite lizardy. So but again, yes. there's old meets new. It's kind of a transitional transitional period. Yeah, I would say so. Yes, it's very much uh, an intermediate sort of uh, book. Also on the use of the colors, I do have to say that there is... Uh, much in common with our guest later in this episode. Who uh, also has a comic book background, so there you go. Indeed. There you go. Our guest this month is illustrator and designer Raven Amos, who's informed, vibrant compositions with their graphic aesthetic and unabashed decorative art flavours make for exactly the kind of paleo art we're so fond of championing here on Chasmosaurs. Raven has led a paleo art workshop at the most recent TED ZoomCon event, is one of the contributing artists for the forthcoming, much-anticipated book, Mesozoic Art, and is a co-host of the Gallimorphic Science Podcast, together with Scott Elliard and Tommy Liu. Raven, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Natia. I just want to add uh, Zach Miller in with that too. He's our uh, fellow co-host here in Alaska. Thank you. All right. So on to the first question then. Um, Raven, are we going to be disappointed or delighted by your answer to this one, do you think? Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the other interviewers that we've had. Uh, well, I, I admit I have only caught a few episodes of the podcast, mainly because of uh, my hectic schedule. Uh, keeping of the course, house no, no. running here. <laughs> it's not a problem at all. It's just that I do wonder whether our listeners have grown weary of my asking it at this point. But nevertheless, how did? Oh, I see. I see. Okay. <laughs> how did your interest in paleontology develop? Um, what was your starter pack to this field, as it were? Oh, uh, I, I have discussed this before on Twitter here uh, a couple weeks ago. Actually, uh, my interest began very early on. Um, I think it started with my brother and my dad, really. Um, they kind of saw early on that I wasn't into the normal girly stuff, right? So they figured, well, let's see what other kind of things that Raven is into. So uh, dinosaurs, I kind of latched onto at an early age. And actually, one of my first pieces of paleo art was done in tandem with my brother, Neil Schoenfelder. Uh, he drew the body of a triceratops and I drew the head, or it might have been reverse. Uh, you know, I was like four or five at the time. So uh, by the time I was uh, the age of like seven or eight, I'd already had kind of amassed a big collection of pretty advanced dinosaur books for my age. Some of your listeners may not know, I actually taught myself to read at the age of four. Wow. Uh, I've been reading ever since. My parents wanted to encourage that. So dinosaur books. Ha. So I got uh, uh, like David Norman's Illustrated Dinosaur Encyclopedia. I would pore over that as a kid. I mean, cover to cover, several times a week sometimes, <laughs> looking for, you know, my favorite dinosaurs or just pictures that kind of popped out specifically. Oh, uh, I, I forget the name of the author, but it was just a book that said Dinosaurs, and it has kind of a greenish, bluish triceratops on the cover. Um, that was one of my favorites. I really loved that uh, artist's uh, watercolor works and illustrations and that, uh, the kind of the flowing lines and shapes and yes. stuff. And I think um, that particular book, I know you guys have covered it in Love and the Time and Chasmosaurus. I'm just blanking really? on the name right now. 
Yeah, I'm trying I to think, think what, so. it, what it could be. Well, we'll move on to one that I actually know. Uh, Illustrated Dinosaur Encyclopedia by Dougal Dixon, too. That uh, really of kind of uh, inspired me. I'm not really the biggest fan of Dougal Dixon, but like I said, I was kind of a, a prolific reader growing up. And once I learned how to read by myself, I, I kind of never stopped. Mm. So anything with a dinosaur on it was fair game growing up. And uh, luckily, you know, Alaska being the way it is, kind of isolated from the rest of the U.S. back in the 80s and 90s, we um, we actually had kind of a lot of bookstores that had a great selection. And uh, most of my school libraries who had good uh, reading material for, you know, an artistic dinosaur inclined person like myself. Um, we had all three of Dougal Dixon's uh, major weirdo books, as I call them, uh, Man After <laughs> wow. Man, After Man, and all, uh, the all New three Dinosaurs. Of them. That is all rare. three of them, yeah. Yeah, that is rare. Um, also, this same school library, uh, this was my high school library, also had things like uh, Wayne Douglas Barlow's books and, you know, some other more advanced dinosaur books. So uh, it was kind of inevitable as a kid being surrounded by this. And uh, at, at an early age, I got turned on to the works of Roger Dean, uh, the guy that did uh, album covers for Asia. Yes. And some other um, prog rock bands. So his his coloration, his, you know, real stark kind of graphical quality to some of his works were uh, a major inspiration. Uh, as I was a teenager, I kind of shifted more towards the fantasy side of things, uh, kind of stayed there, as it were, for a while, uh, kind of shied away from dinosaurs, actually, because it was like, yeah, this is kind of nerdy and not a lot of the kids around here are into nerd stuff. So maybe I should do something like fantasy, which is still kind of nerdy but uh, i guess more acceptable to some of the kids around here than dinosaurs before i kind of settled back on dinosaurs and i actually have my husband to thank for that uh-huh. uh, when i met him uh, i was kind of in a, a real down area i was uh, uh really in a uh, an artist rut there i hadn't drawn anything really outside of work uh in over five years at that point uh, when I met him, I used to do a lot of furry art on deviant art. I was, that was my, uh, my thing. Right. Uh, as an early adopter, I shifted away from that, um, had some experiences that left a bad taste in my mouth. So I just kind of wanted to, you know, distance myself from that. And, uh, when I met Scott, it was like a breath of fresh air and like a flashback to what mattered to me yes. you know, as an artist, like getting back to my roots and there was something about sitting there and contemplating deep time that really just kind of appealed to me. I mean, I guess you could call it navel gazing if you're outside of our of our <laughs> general <laughs> group if you want. But it's really something different than that because it's an because inf- you know it's not just you know oh I'm going to think really hard and this is what dinosaurs look like. No, you're thinking really hard and you're also applying other um, things like anatomy, uh, you know, path- bone pathology, you know, you can look at a dinosaur's bones and see what kind of a life it led. Uh, the most famous one being the Parasaurolophus, uh, the one with the big, uh, swoopy crest, the, uh, hadrosaur, the first one that they ever found the holotype has, a an injury from where a tree fell on it. Yes. That's amazing to me. Yes. Um, 
and the fact that you can see that and, and translate that and um... oh i was just going to say when it comes to contemplating deep time i think you, you do it a bit more than perhaps some people do in that you really contemplate full paleo environments in immense detail i mean i read um an interview from a few years ago where you talked about your uh, flower dance piece and how yeah. much work went into that how many hours and how many hundreds of browser tabs yes. you had open at the same time you're researching all this uh flora which is quite remarkable yes yes yeah my my browser was screaming my computer was screaming at full fan all the time <laughs> when i was doing that one you know the dinosaurs are great and all uh they're they're very charismatic huge animals for the most part the ones that we seem to be interested in the most and um i always kind of like the underdog i liked going out and being in nature and looking around at plants even if it was in a city, I would, I spend a lot of time looking at whatever trees are planted there. I pay a lot of attention to the animals, you know, big, small, just because, you know, that's the kind of person I am. I, I, I'm still kind of introverted in many ways, even if I appear bombastic on my, on my own podcast. Um, but uh, um, I spent a lot of time just kind of, you know, being very quiet and listening and looking and observing and you know there's so many things that you can notice that other people just drive past and um it's it's kind of sad in a way because there's just so many marvels out there even the small ones and i really wanted to pick that as as something to to look at in in paleo art and i i think one of the influences i had with that is uh, 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 Vernier, who was a very early French illustrator in the Art Nouveau scene. Um, he was around during the Victorian era. And around that time, um, you know, creepy crawly things like bugs and bats and lizards, they were seen as like, you, you get away from me, you vile, vile creature. But this artist Vernier, he took such care and such diligence and love and put it into these creatures that were just seen as icky creatures, something that you, you, you didn't want to look at. So snails and insects and moths and, and little bats and things like that. And they were just rendered with such loving care and as, as much care as he put into his swans and birds and pheasants. And I really, that spoke to me. Yes. And I didn't really get into his artwork until later on, but um, I think that right there clicked with me at just the right time, right after I'd met Scott, and kind of catapulted me into like, this is what I want to do with Paleoart. I want people to see that even the, the weird, creepy stuff can be kind of beautiful and, of and interesting in its own right. Yes. Well, Raven, um, I must say it, it's entirely refreshing to hear just how complex and intricate your starting points, your early paleo influences were. Um, because um, for a lot of our younger uh, artists whom we interviewed, um, the most common answer tends to be you know, the one uh, media property that we all know of. <laughs> of course, of yes. course. I just happened to have been born before all that. Before, and I was uh, yeah. 13 when that movie came out. Yes. I was going to say, to be fair, Raven did mention the Normanopedia. Uh, which is another one that everyone is being influenced by. Everyone that in the world. True. That artwork is so familiar to absolutely everyone. Although it's, it's funny how dissim how completely and utterly dissimilar that is to Raven's work. As it's Indeed, involved. yes. 
Right. I would I would actually take skeletons. I would trace skeletons out of that book. So um, I, I think that's kind of why a lot of my work is more abstract rather than, I wouldn't say abstract, but more clean lines rather than painterly is because I would have to really focus on uh, drawing the lines of the skeleton uh, through a sheet of paper with like no light board behind it. So I had to be real careful about like, okay, that goes there, that line goes there. And I would like flip up and make sure that my, my skeleton was matching. So I think that's kind of why I got into like animation in college too, is I already had that motion down, <laughs> that flipping of the page motion. On, on the subject of your style then, um, Raven, um, you've already given us a wonderful uh, example of just how many diverse influences you've had, um, but specifically on your style, um, I, I mentioned in my introduction to you that your style is one which we love to highlight uh, here on Casmosaurs. And for me, it really is a union Thank you. of so many characteristics that I love. It, it issues um, a capital R realism while still retaining a love for the organic, but has an emphasis on strong line work and a flair for the ornamental. Um, and you've already mentioned um, uh, an art nouveau artist, which is very easy to spot uh, from among your influences, as well as things like uh, printmaking disciplines and the arts and crafts movement. And in even, I would say, uh, the influence of pop art oh, in yes. uh, your palette. Um, so can you talk us through how you arrived at your style? Um, well, as you, as you have said, pop art is kind of one of those uh, uh, influences there. And in my uh, in my experience, because, you know, I live in Alaska and we get kind of a lot of weird stuff up here. Anime kind of played a huge role in uh, developing both my style and my sense of color. Right. Um, and I was one of the, the earlier anime fans up here. That's why I have Alaska anime as my uh, tagline and always kind of will be my username for everything. Yes. Um, just because that's, that's my roots as far as color and, and art goes. And, uh, uh, you know, played a lot of video games growing up that had that, that style to it. Uh, Chrono Trigger was another one of those, Akira Toriyama, uh, early fan of his. Uh, not so much of the of his Dragon Ball stuff, more of his video game properties, because that kind of stuff more appealed to me. And of course, Chrono Trigger has dinosaurs and dragons in it, so it's a natural, a natural fit. For right, me. of course. Um, uh, I was kind of into color theory early on, choosing colors ever since I found out that certain colors can affect one's mood. Yes. Um, you know, that thing where uh, that's why they painted McDonald's, the insides of McDonald's, like orange and and red and yellow. It was to get you hungry and it was to uh, make you nervous, get you back out so the next person could take your seat over. Hmm. Yeah, of course. On that wonderful lead there, Raven, uh, on the subject of color theory, um, you led a workshop at the most uh, recent TED ZoomCon event, uh, the, the Zoom version of the Tetrapod Zoology Conference. Now, I, although I was there, I wasn't assigned to your workshop, but I do recall um, your fascinating breakdown thread on Twitter about your talk. And your subject was indeed color theory and color blindness. Um, this especially is something which I don't think has been much addressed before in terms of the science communication aspect of paleo art. Would you be able to give us another brief summary of it? A brief uh, might be a little hard there, but I could definitely give you <laughs> Thank a summary. You. So, um, Five minutes. Uh, 
a little bit of uh, background here. Um, my brother, um, uh, unfortunately, estranged brother, uh, Doug Amos, he is also colorblind. Right. And uh, for, so for uh, years early on, I, I, I tried to make sure that, like, if I showed him my artwork, he could kind of see what was going on. So I would ask him about, you know, hey, could you help me pick colors here? So it was really interesting seeing which colors he picked, you know, from his perspective about what would look good. Mm. And um, knowing that and knowing that a sizable amount of the population, you know, is actually colorblind, both male and female and uh, um, non-binary folk, uh, accessibility is really important because uh, Let's face it, I live in an area that they kind of want to make science inaccessible. They don't want people to be educated where I am. So uh, I see it as kind of like, a, you know, screw the system type thing. I'm going to be as educated as I can be. And I want other people to have that opportunity, too. And um, I've noticed, like, with uh, charts and stuff, uh, especially if, like, it's a line chart, um, it can be really hard for people, even with good color acuity, to read and tell the difference between some of these these colors. And uh, I think it's really important that you know we keep that in mind that uh, we need to make art accessible, uh, art and science accessible to everybody. Yes. Uh, as far as the breakdown goes, so we like to credit a Sir, uh, Sir Isaac Newton with inventing a color wheel. Uh, that shows the relationship, what we call a relationship between colors. It's how uh, colors harmonize between each other. So if you pick a certain color, say red, on this color wheel, uh, across from red is green. That would be its complement. And you use those two colors to kind of set the background apart from the foreground or, you know, put something interesting in there. You can use, uh, you know, any shade or tint of that color of those two colors, and you can get a really interesting effect. Um, you, you know, Christmas, of course. Yes. So red and green is a very popular combination. It kind of grabs the eye. So, so you can uh, do that with other colors, of course, uh, not just red and green. When uh, I was approached by uh, Darren Nash, I, I actually kind of panicked about uh, uh, being. Uh, on the first Tet Zoom Con, I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I going to talk about? I don't know really anything about uh, anatomy in as in as much as somebody else who studies anatomy does. I mean, uh, I'm not that kind of a scientist, unfortunately. I never got the opportunity to study that in college, but uh, I do know a thing or two about color theory, just based on uh, my own experiences and what I've read and what I've. Um, put forth in my own paintings and stuff and uh, that I can teach about. And uh, thankfully uh, that seems to have been a popular thing or at least something that people enjoyed listening to. So uh, I will definitely be doing that again and uh, retooling my, uh, my talk a bit more. Um, but um, you use color to set a mood and to kind of draw the reader's eye, your viewer's eye across uh, your painting uh, my favorite that I like to bring up, even in the, uh, especially in that Twitter thread, was Wayne Douglas Barlow did this great image of, uh, I believe they were iguanodons. Yes. And he had the iguanodons uh, and the 
background yeah. done in that blue color yes. and then everything else you had the volcano in the background that was bright red and then you had that little dinosaur that's right and i actually missed the little dinosaur at first because i was just so enthralled with oh my god these big lumbering creatures in this stark blue and then you have this 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 pop of color in the background and i thought that was just really mm. uh, kind of like a great way to just take color theory and turn it on. That's right. Head, in a way. Yes. We spoke about this illustration among others or by Barlow, in fact, um, in, uh, in an earlier episode when we, when we did discuss um, Wayne Barlow's yeah. um, dinosaur alphabet. And yes, this was one of the, oh, yes. let's call it the star illustrations yeah. that we talked about. It's one of our favorites. Um, indeed it Definitely. was. Yes. Yes. So from just an aesthetic and a technical aspect, it is probably one of the better paintings in that entire book. Yes. There are resources out there. If you are concerned about if your art uh, will be accessible to other folk, um, which I, 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 I think is a good concern, um, then you, uh, I will give you guys here at the end of the episode a URL to check out for how is my art going to look. Um, if you don't have... Uh, Photoshop. Photoshop has uh, actually a, a tool that allows you to see your work through the most common type of um, color blindness. Right. But this URL that I'm going to dig up actually has all types of color blindness. And all you have to do is upload a screenshot or a JPEG of what you're working on, and it will show you there through the website what it actually looks like uh, through. Uh, the eyes of all types of color blindness. Brilliant. We'll include that um, in our show notes as well. Excellent. Be sure you guys get that. I kind of want to go and play around with that now just to upload loads of <laughs> images of different things. <laughs> see what it's like. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the next question is about the book uh, Mesozoic Art, um, edited by Steve White and Darren Nash, both of whom are not only extremely familiar names in the paleosphere, but were also our guests in previous episodes. Um, so tell us, Raven, about your inclusion yeah. in this. Um, I expect it's going to become something of a landmark publication. Uh, yes. So this is um, uh, kind of exciting for me. This is actually my very first uh, book that I've been published in. Uh, other than no, no, this is the second book I've been published in. So uh, my first, my first say, time getting published. Paleo Artist Handbook. Yeah, Paleo Artist Handbook by Mark Witten. Um, I did that, you know. He, he wasn't able to pay. I didn't care. I was just really glad to get my art in, in a book, but um, I'm really glad that this is like that Steve really worked with the publisher and he got everybody a fair cut. And this is uh, really kind of exciting for me because, you know, it's a, um, a major publisher that uh, gets published here in the U S a lot too. Yes. And um, uh, dinosaur art, the previous publications that he's, he's done actually appeared at uh, Barnes and Noble, and I believe I picked up my copy from there, uh, a major bookseller up here. So uh, this will be my first book that will be probably at a major bookseller. So that is uh, kind of a landmark in my career, um, a little feather in my cap. Um, but I was, uh, it, it kind of came out of the blue for me. Like I knew Steve White was kind of a fan of my art. I didn't realize how much. So it was really exciting to get, uh, to have such a fantastic artist like himself contact me out of the blue and say, hey, uh, we're putting together this new book. Do you want it? And I'm like, of course. I couldn't type yes fast enough. 
yeah, super excited to be in this. Uh, this was a great opportunity. I'm, I'm just uh, overjoyed over the yes, moon of course. To, to have been included. Um, it's kind of a dream come true, really. Uh, oh. Eight-year-old me would be so proud. Oh, I can easily see that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's obvious by now that um, this is a subject about which we're passionate, uh, and indeed one of what I would call our core uh, raison d'être, even. Um, but in a field which places um, such precedence on illusionistic approaches to paleo art, the, its proximity to photography, if you will, it's it's so refreshing for me, at least, to see a style like yours included in a publication like Mesozoic Art. Um, do you know whether there are other artists working in a similar vein to yourself uh, in the book as well? I'm going to say I don't know uh, who else is included. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody else has the similar style that I do. That's fair. But I really do hope that this is kind of like like a, a beginning where more, where more people that have kind of a line work type style uh, really get their due and their inclusion. Exactly. Because, um, you know, you can, you can open up any dinosaur art book from any uh photorealistic artist and they all start the same we start with sketches we start with line work yes i i also had a uh an influence and an interest in being a tattoo artist of course uh, but, uh, alas i couldn't afford i couldn't afford the uh um the en- the fee to entry for that that's right. like kind of an expensive proposition because you actually have to pay to to um be under somebody with that right so uh i really hope that this is kind of the beginning uh if there are other artists included uh i'm really glad to see that be a thing uh if there are other artists that follow kind of my my vein of, of style oh yes i have actually tried doing you know the photorealistic uh approach you can see that in bower tyrants and i think that's uh my bower tyrants piece that i did that ended up in uh all your yesterdays yes of course and uh cm Cosman. yes uh, that was my attempt at doing photorealism. And uh, the m- other most recent picture that I guess could uh, qualify as an attempt at photorealism anyway would be uh, the picture that ended up accompanying the uh, fossil for Buster at the Royal BC Museum. And that would be A Fall Day Out is the name of that piece. So it's a leptoceratopsid mother with uh, three chicks. And that's uh, anytime you see... Uh, a single dinosaur with three chicks. That's uh, actually kind of a, a nod to my mom uh-huh. and uh, the two kids and, and us three kids. Cause uh, my father passed away when I was 15, right. 16 right. Uh, actually. So she had to, my, my brothers, uh, my other two brothers were older than me and they were, you know, gone, but she, you know, raised me and uh, was there for my brothers. So yes, um, that's an homage to my mother. So uh, if you see the dinosaur with, with three chicks that's me and my two brothers that's wonderful huh. uh, just a little just yeah, a little okay. secret you guys may not know Sorry, not. yeah that's brilliant well what i was going to ask was um how you'd found the reception of your work among the sort of wider community of dinosaur enthusiasts has it generally been positive i, I know you've come up against some slightly odd criticism in the past um i think in particular of the time mm. Your, your Ichthyoventor illustration when somebody criticized the fish for being too small. So yeah, yeah. So, so um, that and one other is pretty much the only like real negative thing I've gotten other than, you know, running into Christianists in real life, oh selling my work at, at uh, holiday fairs and whatnot. But um, that's that's different. They have nothing to do with paleontology. I don't care yeah. what their opinion is. Um, 
But um, uh, yes, so <laughs> when I was first on DeviantArt and uploading dinosaur art, somebody got into a, a large argument with me about uh, why would Ichthia Venator bother with that fish? It's too small. Where are the rest of the fish? And it's like, are you really that much of a literalist that you can't <laughs> use your imagination to envision the rest of the school that's under the water? Do I literally have to draw every single fish? under the water for your uh, amusement sir no i'm not going to have a nice day i mean yeah we we got into kind of an argument and people are like uh even tommy Long, my co-host for the podcast back before we were doing podcasts was like talking to this guy going you know that that uh crocodiles eat like tiny minnows and like bears will sit there and eat bees like <laughs> the guy is like, no, no, that, those are modern animals. You cannot possibly put any kind of modern animal behavior on a on a prehistoric creature. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. none whatsoever. A anti ethical to what everything that we do as paleo artists. It's like, yeah, I can I can take what you say and just file it in the round file. Um, right you know sorry sir but you are wrong you were very wrong so very wrong go out and touch some grass please just watch a bug right just one yeah that's all our uh, podcast is um, unable to illustrate how far my eyes have rolled towards the back of my head but yes we are <laughs> you've broken you've broken your optic nerve uh, yes i may have uh we are all too familiar with uh with commentary of this kind um from the the paleo scene online i think but anyway but, yeah. but it's mostly been pretty positive it has mostly, mostly been, been pretty positive. positive uh the second one the second one there's one more yeah. and it's really kind of funny and i gotta include it because um so you are familiar with uh, uh my piece it's called alice in wonderland has a nanak source yes fully feathered standing at the edge yeah. at the, with all the plants in the background and stuff yeah. um so i uh took the dinosaur out of that and i used her as a mascot for a t-shirt design that says uh science made dinosaurs awesome kind of a a, a direct attack on this other t-shirt design on this uh site that i'm on that says science ruined dinosaurs and it had this you know silly looking tyrannosaurus with a uh, coat of of fake looking feathers so i decided to you know throw down the gauntlet as it were and uh somebody on uh my etsy shop left a comment or not a comment but they sent me a message you know i i had put a tag for tyrannosaurus because literally three people have heard of nanosaurus which is yeah. uh, by the way a tyrannosaur discovered in alaska not very many people have heard of Nanoxaurus. It's kind of a niche dinosaur. So I put Tyrannosaurus as one of my tags, not even as a descriptor in the um, in the title for the piece. Right. And this person decided to call me an enemy of science because I had the audacity to put a marketing term in a t-shirt that I'm actively trying to sell. Yeah. <laughs> so enemy of science for trying to sell work to people that don't know what a nanoxaurus is. Sorry. <sighs> Just, yeah. Ludicrous but for the most part, overwhelmingly pop, uh, I have had an overwhelmingly positive uh, in, in uh, encounters with uh, uh, folk in my work in, in the past and present. So I'm, I'm very pleased to have uh, hit so many g good buttons on people, I guess, as it were. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm pleased that my art is so widely accepted. Hmm. Yeah, it's good to hear people are so accepting of um, 
as we've been discussing at length, a quite differing style to this sort of more, you know, usual commercial photorealistic sort of stuff that you would see. That's so, right. Uh, yeah. Right. This has been lovely. And uh, thank you very much for the opportunity, uh, Nati. You are actually probably one of my favorite artists. So when uh, you asked me, would I like to be on this podcast? I, I admit to making a very shrill shrieking noise and running around saying yes, 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 before typing. Oh, this. Raven, that's so kind. Thank <laughs> you very much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. you, you I've the impression you often have uh, difficulty saying yes because you get overexcited. Like earlier on, it was like, um, you know, in response to Steve, you're like, I couldn't type yes fast enough. I just got this image of you right? whenever you get excited about these things, <laughs> frantically mashing at the keyboard. I say, yes! I am. Yes. I, <laughs> so I, I seem, you know, subdued and whatnot, but I'm actually a very excitable person uh, <laughs> when I'm in private. Uh, I, I just, I'm a passionate person. That's all I can say. Yes. Yes, yes I think we can see that. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Raven, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you again so much for your time. And uh, we look forward, as always, to all your future developments. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Niels from the editing booth. The mistake that Nati is about to correct here actually didn't make it into the podcast. It was deleted for time. I left the correction in anyway. The deleted section of the interview will be made available to our supporters on Patreon. Anyway, on to your regularly scheduled program. Well, that was a great interview, wasn't it? That was a great interview. We totally just did. Uh, yes, um, one erratum. I mistakenly said that the interview with David James Armsby uh, was in episode 11, and it was in fact episode 9. I uh, prided myself somewhat with being... Uh, able to recall pretty well what we did for which episode, but now that we've done more than a year's worth, my memory on this score is no longer reliable. So I do apologize. Um, I also neglected, uh, bad Nati, to ask Raven to plug her wares, but we are rectifying this by including all links to her shop, etc. in the show notes. So please go and follow them. Yes, please do. Nati um, does have trouble when they run out of fingers uh, to count things on. That's Hence the, hence the error. Yes, I'm afraid so. I uh, was never very good at maths. I mean, how do you keep track of anything anymore? Everything is just mush. Exactly. We've come full circle. We recorded our first episode during uh, the previous lockdown, and I am back in uh, lockdown yes. again. Back on this carousel. It does mean I have time to finally do the Patreon reward, which I've been teasing all this time. But I'm actually going to do it this time. What's the Patreon reward, Nails? Well, Mark, I'm glad you asked. Um, (laughs) The Patreon reward will consist of a long montage of deleted scenes from the first 10 episodes or so. It's going to be a huge thing uh, of two hours. And I don't know if it's going to make any sense. But um, yeah, I have cut quite a a lot of material from uh, the previous episodes, um, much of which is, I think, interesting and worth hearing. Our patron supporters are very soon going to get access to um, to those deleted scenes, and I'm going to um, edit them together in some sort Behind of the scenes. giant bonus podcast, and uh, hopefully it'll be listenable, and hopefully it'll be interesting. It'll be good for a laugh, if nothing else, I think. How much of it will be my interview with Darren? At least half an hour of it, I think. <laughs> well, um, the, this one is just going to be the first 10 episodes. And, oh, of course, uh, because again, now, now, now I can't count. <laughs> See, uh, I'm as bad as everyone else. Shame. 
that, that's, that's just <laughs> that's just karmic retribution right there. Oh, well. that's, uh, yeah, I deserve that. <laughs> well, there you go. Oh well, we'll all look forward to your um, episode of, of uh, cut contents, which hopefully won't involve too much swearing or dumb jokes, or although it'll probably involve quite a bit of both. Well, you, you know how it is. If somebody swears, I'll uh, I'll edit in the the roar from uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just going to be lots of exasperated sighs. <laughs> Although last time uh, during the Darren interview, I did I did forget to edit out a certain cuss word, and um, yeah, um, points to any listener who caught I, that. I thought I thought you did edit it. I'm not even sure that I recall. Well, you, you said a bad word, Mark, and then Darren called you out on it, and I edited that bit out. But um, Darren himself actually did use a, a, a certain cuss word, which. Uh, might be shocking for some people to hear so here's a retroactive content warning on last month's episode <gasps> okay <laughs> cute pearl clutching tyrannosaur yeah i think if this bit has taught us anything it's that nobody is unfallible in here in yeah did, did he say uh species recognition hypothesis no that that that's a swear word in certain um <laughs> certain circles anyway uh thank you all for listening go support us on patreon if you want to hear the extra stuff um and uh, happy new year to all happy new year thank you so much happy new year thank you for listening to love in the time of chasmosaurs you can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com you can find us on facebook at love in the time of chasmosaurs and on twitter at chasmosaurs if you want to give us your support you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash L-I-T-C. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon.